As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. Opposites attract, they say, and this can make parenting difficult, especially when you and your partner can't agree on anything. And then you throw in a divorce or a separation and that makes co-parenting all that much more challenging. My guest today, Brad Craig, knows all about the challenges of co-parenting. He is the creator of a program called Children in the Middle and also the author of Between Two Homes. He's here today to talk with us about the challenges that parents face, how they can overcome those challenges, and really make decisions that are in the best interest of their children. Thank you so much for taking time today to come visit with me. Thank you, Jennifer. It's so great to be here. We haven't had uh, cases together in the past, so I was really excited to be invited <laughs> on the show. Excellent. <laughs> well, I want to start off and just ask you, what led you into this field of work? You are a mental health professional, so tell us a little bit about your credentials and, and why you're focused on helping families. Okay. So uh, I'm a licensed social worker and a certified family life educator uh, here in the state of Texas. Licensure is an important thing to have if you're a mental health professional working with families. So that's the board that I answer to. But I always talk about, you know, what really makes me an expert in this area, I think, occurred long before I ever became a professional. I'm a child who grew up between two homes. My parents separated and didn't have the best co-parenting relationship, didn't have the worst co-parenting relationship either. Um, but I, I think it gave me some insight into what really is important for children. So many times in the legal process, best interest boils down to parenting time. And that has so little to do with really the quality of life of a child growing up between two homes. You know, for me, what I remember is how important peer relationships were and extracurricular activities and those type things, things that so often get overlooked in even the legal process. You know, we look at rights, duties, and privileges. Rarely do we look at, well, you know, let's keep the parents in a closer proximity unless there's a domicile restriction or... Uh, you know, what about the children's right to go to extracurricular activities and just hang out with a best friend on a Friday night, independent of whose parenting time it is. So that, that really was my motivator, I think, for getting into this field was improving the quality of life for children growing up between two homes and looking at services that were a little more empowering for families that were raising children between two homes instead of being petitioner respondent, how to continue being parents, you know, mom and dad or two moms or two dads or grandparents or whatever that role is between the two homes. Do you think, I want to talk about the whole like idea of co-parenting because we talk about that a lot. I mean, I think everybody knows ideally, you know, parents should get along and they should be able to make decisions and they should agree. But the reality is, you know, I, I think all parents think they're acting in the best interest of their children, mm -hmm. most parents, um, but they have very, very different ideas of what that is. Right. And so is co-parenting, is this really a myth or is it a reality? And how do we begin to lay the groundwork for the best possible relationship between the parents post-separation? Okay, so it's definitely a reality. You know, I thought about that question of, you know, is school a reality? Yes, but some people <laughs> fail and some people need extra help and then others are quite successful. And so I, I think about that when it comes to co-parenting. I think sometimes we put co-parenting into a box of successful co-parenting. And really there's, uh, at least professionally, there's three different degrees of co-parenting. There's cooperative co-parenting, and that's the best of the worlds. That's where 
you know, moms and dads are still moms and dads, even though they're not lovers or husband and wife, or uh, again, whatever that situation is, if it's same sex, or even if it's grandparents, you know, the children are residing predominantly with grandparents, but spending every other weekend with the parents. Those are all co-parenting relationships. Cooperative co-parenting means that they're getting along to the best of their ability. They have a very business-like relationship. They're inviting each other to parent-teacher conferences. They're seeking each other's input before enrolling them in extracurricular activities. I mean, they're really engaged and then they have that business relationship. Then there's parallel co-parenting. And parallel co-parenting is really designed for families where there's a lot of conflict and one or both parents have an inability to disengage from the conflict. And so parallel par parenting is really very much what it sounds like. We're both going to parent, but we're gonna do it on more of a parallel streak. So we, we'll be communicating about a few things that we need to, but in general, the rules are gonna be one way in one household, maybe differently in the other household, but at least we're not engaging in conflict where the children are exposed to parents saying bad things about each other and fights during exchanges and some of those behaviors. Then conflicted co-parenting is what we wanna protect children from. Yeah. Conflicted co-parenting is where parents are screaming, yelling, cussing each other out at exchanges, um, have you know multiple attorneys involved, the judge knows them on a first name basis because they're repeat offenders through the court process. Those are those high conflict families. So cooperative co-parenting is like the goal. Um, and then parallel co-parenting is safe. Okay. Conflicted co-parenting is not safe. So when you look at that spectrum or when you look at those different compartments of co-parenting, we definitely co-parent. Most people don't successfully 100% cooperative co-parent even if they're the best of co-parents. There's a small percentage of their relationship that's going to be parallel where it's, okay, the child's gonna be going to a Catholic church first, third, and fifth weekends and a Baptist church second and fourth that's more parallel structure, but there's some agreements in place. Like, we're not gonna disparage each other's religious beliefs. We're going to make sure that the child understands that, you know, there'll be an age that you reach where you'll determine your own path. So that's a safe parallel plan and they may cooperatively co-parent in all other areas or just about all areas. So when you have the conflict, thank you, that's so helpful because I, I'm gonna tell you that when I think of co-parenting, I think of it as the healthy context of something that, oh, you know, kind of a unicorn. It isn't, <laughs> it's, it's very much real. But it is helpful to look at it that there is co-parenting, it's just conflicted or parallel or cooperative. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever have families who come to you and they start off in a conflicted uh, co-parenting relationship and they're able to adapt and change and move into a much more constructive co-parenting relationship? So absolutely, you know, most of my work, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at that, is with high conflict families. I mean, you know, my services like my co-parenting class and online services, those are for, for all families. But I think a lot of the courts around this area have forgotten, hey, Brad likes working with warm fuzzy cases. <laughs> he likes those collaborative law cases. He likes mediations. Most of the families that get referred to me are high conflict families. And so through that type of model, some families will, you're moving them from conflicted co-parenting and it may be safest for them to be parallel and they may stay that way. But for an awful lot of the families that I work with, once we start giving them tools, things that they didn't know about before, how to look at situations different, how to communicate better with each other, it can evolve to higher levels of cooperative co-parenting. 
It is interesting because I know just in the work that I've done with families and as a parent myself, um, with a co-parent, you know, there are these things that we do instinctively that we think are best for children, but actually can make things much more difficult for children. So the example I think of is when a breakup happens, you know, a parent may feel like it's best for their children to know why the breakup is happening. Mm -hmm. And as professionals, we know that's terrible. Right. And so sometimes people just don't know, they haven't been educated and they don't have the tools. What, What kind of tools or tips do you have for somebody who is right now facing the breakup of a relationship? <sighs> so tools and tips, I, I probably have gobs. I, I think you the most difficult thing, and a portable <laughs> version of the class in a book, yeah. Uh, you know, I think the most difficult thing is transitioning from that previous intimate relationship into a business relationship of co-parenting where you're, you know, where you have a co-parenting alliance. It's hard to transition. It's hard to you know, it's hard to remember bad spouse doesn't equal bad co-parent. You know, maybe they, maybe there were affairs, maybe there were some other things that occurred, but that doesn't mean that they're in a poor quality co-parenting relationship. It just means we need to move on. You know, that's yesterday's business. And that's really hard, I think, during the initial separation period, you know, whether it's a cooperative family or a collaborative law case or a high conflict case, it's that transition period. And often you find the parents at different levels. You have the parent who's, I'm done with it. I'm ready to go. I don't see why my co-parent can't get over it. And then you've got the other who's like, well, I thought we went to marriage counseling. I mean, we just found out. So even in collaborative law, I use a chart when I'm working with families to measure where do you think you are and where is your co-parent? And we look at the intimate divorce, but we also look at what about the legal and so on. What we often find is one parent's still kind of at almost shock and denial and anger while the other is at acceptance. And I have to remind the one at acceptance, look, you know, a year ago, you were doing these things. You remember digging through their phone, digging through their trash. You were doing some of these crazy things. Oh, yeah. I I was doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that idea of the divorce readiness is really helpful because usually the person who's initiating the divorce has probably lived with that decision for a long period of time Mm -hmm. before they finally took the step to initiate the divorce. And the other parent can really be caught off guard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find this process, you know, I, I really wanted to improve the quality of life for children growing up between tombs. But part of that to me was about empowering and educating families. I, I, the number one complaint we get for whether it's the live class or the online class is, I wish I'd taken this class earlier, or I wish I'd taken this class sometimes before I hired an attorney. Because sometimes these families just, they don't know what they don't know. And so, like you mentioned, they make some mistakes along the way, like the secret agent child or the messenger child or they just don't even know what alternatives are available. One year we tabbed the results of our pre-test and post-test. And one of the questions that we ask is, what are the forms of alternative dispute available in Texas? Now this was about 10 years ago. Um, A very small percentage, about 23% I think from the tab, were able to list mediation. There was 1% of any other forms. I mean, that included collaborative law and all those others. So at the end of the class, 97% scored the answer to knowing uh, about mediation and collaborative law and other options that they don't have. And of course, a big complaint tends to be when I teach the class, when I talk about collaborative law, it's like, hey, that's a great idea. We're going to do that. We already have attorneys. Mm, Well, that may be something you need to explore with your attorneys. They just simply don't know. And I don't think we 
open that door very well or make it very inexpensive for them to get that information. You know, they can meet with me $200 an hour or they can take a class for $40 or they can read a book for, you know, $10.95 if you're on Amazon. I love the idea when you're talking about empowered parenting and really, I mean, giving parents tools and, and education resources. What, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see parents make like early on because they're not empowered? This isn't, this isn't somebody who's malicious and really trying to hurt their children. There are those parents out there, hopefully not many. There are. But, um, but, but for the most part, I mean, people just don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. What do you see, like what are the light bulbs that go off in, for people? So, you know, I, I, I think a big part of that is that grief process during the, the separation, or even if you're, even if the co-parenting scenario is grandparents, you know, a maternal grandmother who realizes my daughter's not safe around my grandbabies and I raised my daughter, you know, that in itself is a whole grief process. So uh, there's a study done and I wish I could cite it because the, the language is so perfect. And I read it early in my career that at a time when children need their parents the most during that divorce process or separation process, is the time that the parents have the least faculties to give them. Makes sense, they're going through grief, but they have no idea what the grief process is all about. They're, you know, they're hearing things like, you need to get along with your co-parent. At the same time, they're hearing things like, you need to be prepared for court. If you give them that Tuesday, they're gonna fight for those Tuesdays in the future, so you better not give up those Tuesdays now. You can in the future. They're being asked to wear kind of two different hats. The I've got to defend myself and defend myself in court hat at the same time where I'm being pressured. You got to get along with this person whether you like them or not. I'm just thinking, I mean, this is, I have never really thought of, thought of this before, but the fact, you know, when we're preparing for court, I need a timeline. I need written, like every, every bad thing the other parents ever done, every bad decision, right? Right. But that's at the same time that we're asking them to be cooperative, to be flexible in their thinking, to be forgiving, to let go of all of these anger and resentment. Mm -hmm. Those two things do not fit very well together. They don't. And I think that's why, you know, one of the things about writing this book that I didn't realize would occur is now I have attorneys giving copies to their clients. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they'll buy bulk uh, load to give to their clients because they're what, what they're starting to realize, I think, is that empowered clients are empowered clients. And if they know a little bit better, or even if they take the online class, they have assumptions about what happens in court. And then they get to actually hear from a Tarrant County judge or a Dallas County judge <laughs> about things like domicile, uh, dom domicile restrictions. And so, you know, they leave, I think, a class like that going, oh, I had a preconception. I've been watching Judge Duty or, you know, yeah. divorce court. And I thought that's the way it really happened. So I find that you're right, that they're wearing these, you know, even when I'm doing parenting facilitation with my really high conflict families, I acknowledge to them in that first session, it's like, I'm going to be telling you and holding you accountable for being cooperative with your co-parent and the divorce isn't even finalized, so I know you're getting some advice that says, don't give up this Tuesday, yeah. even if grandmother's in town because of the conflict. It's a really hard place for them to be. So I think that's the, the main thing that I see is the difficulty of wearing the litigation hat and wearing a co-parenting hat at the same time. What benefits do you see? Because you just mentioned collaborative. So cases that do opt into a collaborative divorce process, how, how do you see that supporting the co-parents and the children? 
So, I, I mean, if nothing else, the determination is left to the parents instead of the court. I love the concept of getting away from fighting for the rubber stamp, and that's what so many families in litigation are fighting for. You know, they're fighting for best interest, and again, best interest tends to boil down to what's the schedule between the two homes? Is it going to be 50-50 or 2 2 five, You know, all these yeah. different plans that we have. That's what it so frequently boils down to. And in collaborative law, you get to be creative. In my uh, collaborative cases, when I'm the child specialist or the communication coach, rather than, again, charging them $200 or $300 to meet with them, they get to take my class free. They get a copy of my book. And I think that's really, really empowering. So that when they actually do have that separate session with me to design the parenting plan, they already know kind of what a parenting plan looks like and and how to empower yourself and about the stages of grief and where you are in the emotions so i think it's really really empowering i love that collaborative law says be creative yeah. i mean there have been so many creative solutions parents have reached whether in regards to the schedule or uh, between the two homes or even child support or anything they're empowered and we look at their goals you know what's your goal where do you want to be in your co-parenting relationship you know as we talk about empowerment one of the things that I, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but um, one of the things that's so difficult in a divorce or separation is fear, right? I mean, people are exactly. operating from a place of fear, and it's, there's nothing more visceral than the fear of losing your child. Correct. It is absolute fear. And empowerment is really the anecdote to the fear. It really is where you understand that you actually have power in this situation, and you get to be a decision maker. And that's what I love about collaborative is that, yeah, like you said, the couple, the parents are the decision makers. Exactly. And, and we help guide them through that process. I mean, that's the yeah. beauty of being a mental health specialist in collaborative law is to me, when I get to work with some of my families, a child specialist or communication coach, I can say, look, I used to do custody evaluations. Yeah. I mean, that's what I did for a living. And I would make the decision for you. Ultimately, the judge would make the decision for you. Isn't it nice that I can sit here and say, hey, you know, that's a mistake. You know, when you are telling your child to carry messages to the other parent, we call that a messenger child. Let's talk about that and process that. And they're empowered. Rather than being evaluated by a complete stranger, telling them what they're doing wrong, they get to learn the process, understand it more. And I think the most important thing that we can do as specialists in this field, if you look at just the concept of therapeutic jurisprudence is how can they go through processes like this in a peaceful way is to empower and educate, to give them the information, and ultimately for them to experience empathy. It's really hard to experience empathy when you're grieving, when you're hurt, when you're thinking, I've got to share this child with somebody who had an affair on me, or I might be losing my child, as you mentioned. You know, the collaborative law process, I think, ties into empathy and empowerment. It's like, you know, we're gonna give you a lot of information up front, I think one of the myths, and I think it may be true in some cases, but one of the myths is that collaborative law is too expensive for families. And I think in some cases that that may be true. I mean, I think there's some families that could peacefully go through this process uh, at, at a lot cheaper cost. And I think we need to embrace that community. You know, Gay Cox had a program in place where we were looking at serving low-income families, and we need that. But the truth is, even in collaborative law, sometimes, you know, when we're meeting with a mental health professional $300 an hour to talk about things that could have been handled in a $10 book, we're probably exploiting families. Mm -hmm. But when we're looking at giving them as much information as we can and empowering them along the way, collaborative law can be far less expensive. And that depends on how you measure that, maybe. Do you look at it financial or do you look at it emotional? And I, I really think that 
really successful collaborative cases, emotionally it's far less taxing than the courtroom. Well, there's a tie-in though, because when we are able to help the, the people be empowered to resolve that conflict, to resolve their own emotional issues, that is a tremendous financial saving. So there is a financial is. uptick to that when you're not having to always come back to court to a you know, third party to make the decisions yep. because you all can't reach a decision. I agree. There's a lot of attorney. You know, I live in East Texas now. There are no collaborative practitioners in mm -hmm. East Texas. Just zero. And if you are a practitioner in East Texas, please let me know. But there are no attorneys that practice collaborative law or anybody that I know of. So they'll send families to me and uh, they'll ask me to just design a shared parenting plan with them. So it's kind of like the offline meetings of collaborative law, but it's not the whole buy-in process. And, you know, there's still the potential fractionalizing of the clients and so I, I really love the whole buy-in of the collaborative process but for low-income families if they really can't afford the process then maybe that's what they need to do just have two attorneys that are very cooperative and supportive they meet with a mental health professional design a parenting plan they meet with a financial advisor to come up with the best financial portfolio for the family there are, I, I think hopefully we'll get to a point where um, we are making enough in collaborative that we go, okay, we're going to have some sliding scale families coming in. Absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I love the work that Gay Cox did. She's definitely a, a leader. Let's, let's talk about, you mentioned the messenger, the messenger child. So I want to talk about some of the, the traps that parents fall into that unwary because they've not been educated and not been empowered. And they kind of result to that default. So what is a messenger child? And you had another term earlier that you used. I can't, I can't remember what it was right now. But let's talk about the kind of the, the bad things that can happen if parents aren't educated. Okay. And, and I'll say what, what I tend to refer to these as the, just the common mistakes. And yeah. we cover that in the class in the book. Just some of those common popular mistakes that, you know, aggressively maintained in a family system can lead to alienation, estrangement, and some of those other behaviors. But these are those behaviors that I think most of the time, it's more, if there is alienation, it's naive alienation, where I'm doing it and I didn't even know it was wrong. So for example, the messenger child, where the child is being told to deliver messages that parents should be communicating about. So it'd be, if you're my daughter, it'd be me saying, now tell your dad you need to go to bed earlier, or uh, tell your dad that you need to go to church more often, or don't forget to tell him there's this upcoming expense and they need to pay it. I was going to say, tell your daddy he needs to pay for horseback riding lessons. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, so the messenger child, the secret agent child, you know, where the child is probed about, you know, you know, what happened this weekend? Where did you guys go? What'd you do? What'd you watch? What was it rated? Who did you see it with? You know, what we see with a lot of children growing up between two homes is there's a bigger emphasis on probing. And sometimes it's unintentional. It's like, well, you know, now that I only get to spend 50% of my child's life, I want to know what's going on in their life. But there's that fine line between finding how they're doing versus tell me where you went, who did you see it with, when did they start dating them? They haven't told me about that. <laughs> you know, where they start gathering information from the child. Um, Gosh, there's so many. There's the exchange facilitator child, where instead of mom and dad handing the child off directly, one parent pulls up curbside, the other parent stays at the doorstep, and the child walks between. And that may be safest. You know, in a lot of the high conflict families I work with, it's safer. But if you can exchange doorstep to doorstep, those few times that you have to when you're not exchanging at the school, show your children that. You know, just you don't have to talk. Have a formal greeting. You know, hey, how you doing? And that's it. 
What impact does that make on the child? Because we're talking like there's parent behavior, but I, I want to talk about, since especially you, you grew up as a child of divorce, like what is the child experiencing in a high conflict situation versus in a cooperative co-parenting situation? So, you know, you boil all the water in the pan of all these studies of raising children between two homes, and the single most important factor that rises to the surface tends to be the quality of the relationship, the business relationship between the two homes. You know, again, whether it's mom and dad, or two moms, two dads, or grandparents, it's that co-parenting relationship. Conflict, unhealthy conflict, is really destructive for children. And I think it's important that we label unhealthy conflict because I think, you know, for example, parallel co-parenting can be safe for children as long as the conflict is regulated appropriately. You know, when couples live together, there's often conflict. Dad walks in the door and says, I really want Chinese food tonight. Mom walks in the door and goes, I really want Italian food tonight. And so they go out for burgers. Children <laughs> learn that that's conflict, but it was resolved. Children that are exposed to high conflict struggle with those issues. So, you know, we've heard divorce is destructive on children. And I think what we've found over the years is it's really not the divorce that's destructive or the separation. It's the decisions that the adults make between those two homes, whether they're going to make it peaceful, try and reduce some inconsistencies between the two households, or whether they revert to kind of mom's house, dad's house thinking, it's my house and I get to do whatever the heck I want to. What the research shows is children growing up with high conflict families struggle far more with intimate relationships, struggling with depression, um, psychosomatic behaviors, for example, you know, they they complain that their stomach hurts and it's not really their stomach hurts, it's a reaction to the stress and things going around with them. An interesting study too is um, that children who grow up with low conflict between mom and dad, where mom and dad really, you know, they did a good job keeping it behind closed doors, those children actually seem to fare worse after the divorce and separation. And when you look at like the gray divorce, where we're looking at people that are older and get a divorce and they tell their children, well, we just stayed together for the sake of you. That's a lot of a burden on a child. <laughs> yeah. And so what these children describe, is like mom and dad got along so well, and then one day they divorced, it's like ripping the rug out from under me. So yes, there is that period when families working together really well, some of those children do worse after the separation for a while, or maybe a little less trusting in adult relationships. But children that are growing up in high conflict families where there's domestic violence, people screaming, yelling, cussing each other out, those children do much better after the separation and divorce. So we need to quit saying divorce is destructive on children. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you said that because I always I always say it's not um, it's it's not conflict that causes divorce, it's unresolved conflict. Exactly. And it's not the divorce that's damaging to the children, it's it's the conflict in the that unresolved conflict between the parents. So yeah, yeah, I mean that is exactly right. Even with high conflict parents, you know, that's what I like about parenting facilitation is they, they can be taught how to engage in healthy conflict. Yeah. You know, they can reach, we can use interspace negotiation. Part of the great thing of collaborative law is I get to use that with my high conflict families. I remember uh, doing a training with Bill Edding. Um, we were speaking in Canada, and I think Bill's going to be on your show here fairly soon. I, we were speaking in Canada, so he was one of the first speakers, and he was going through the mediation process, and he was saying, you know, like interspace negotiation, it doesn't really work well when you're dealing with narcissists. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I'm about to speak, and I'm going to talk about how interspace <laughs> negotiation works with families. And so I'm standing up there presenting, and I was like, no disrespect to Bill Eddy. I mean, I'm a huge fan. I've read his book. I use his book. And coincidentally, he walks in right as I'm presenting this yeah. and he goes, no, Brad, I agree. 
the mediation process, if you're dealing with narcissistic traits and those things, interest-based negotiation probably isn't going to work. And it, but if you're teaching them long term, especially if you're dealing with someone with narcissistic traits, the idea that that was my idea in the first place works really well with them. And so what what happens is long term you can. So I was quite pleased to be able to hear Billy endorse my. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just saying when you only have those one or two sessions with them. Well, and the great thing about interest based negotiation is you start by asking people what do you want, right? Why is that important to you? And you really help clarify what are those goals. And I think for anybody. Who who is beginning a separation process, that's one of the most important things you need to ask yourself is what is my goal at the end of this? Mm -hmm. You know, whether you've initiated the divorce or not, it's hard for a lot of people to do that. But that really you can, you know, begin to use that as your anchor as you go through the process. And, and hopefully having a positive co-parenting relationship is on that list. Um, yeah, I mean, what I find even with high conflict parents that I work with, again, is there is that common ground. So if you can find that common ground and start there, yeah. I'll give you a great example of like, um, parents and so frequently what the cases that I work with, they're just stuck in positions and they've only narrowed it to one option that's available to them. <laughs> So, for example, extracurricular activities. You know, one parent doesn't want them to play football because it's too dangerous. The other parent wants to enroll them in football. If you go back to the beginning, ask them, so what do we have in common here? They, they both want their children to be involved in extracurricular activities. They may both want their children in football, but what they're worried about is a closed head injury. So they tend to be stuck with the he plays or he doesn't play. What I like to do is an exercise with all my families when it comes to football and say, okay, let's develop some other options. Well, we could go get a second opinion. We could, maybe they should play flag football, but not full contact. Maybe their passion is football, but not necessarily playing. Maybe they want to be a reporter one day and they want to, you know, so let's explore all these options. So it's great to work with that first session with high conflict families where I take them through the these are your positions. Now, how many different options? And then I'll usually throw out an option that's ridiculous. You know, an option like they can't play extracurricular activities at all. We're too high conflict of a family. We'll never, ever be able to agree. So then when I go back to the options and say, which is the first you'll cross off? Yeah. Like, well, that one. Like, good. You just overruled your parenting facilitator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. Was the and, option and I developed it. You shut it down. Yeah. You both agreed on something. And that freedom to explore, um, I think, is so beneficial. Tell us about the services that you are providing. I mean, I know you've got this fabulous book. I will Thank show you. it up That's here. Between Two Homes, a co-parenting handbook. Um, it's an excellent book for anybody who is separating from their partner. Um, so what are some of the other services? So I think the least intrusive and the easiest are uh, the book, and I offer online classes too. Uh, for many years, I struggled with the idea of an online class because I love teaching live class. I love the audience response. but it's less expensive and you know it, it is a learning modality you know that says a lot of folks are growing up learning how to learn online so uh, we have the online class and that's only 39.95 we have a parallel co-parenting class for those families that are in conflict and it's meant to follow the uh, between two homes co-parenting class we have the book uh, i offer collaborative law but of course don't do any collaborative law in east texas um, i do co-parenting consultation where both parents can come in meet with me and design a shared parenting plan uh, and the good news is now everything is virtual so now i can meet those families from houston or dallas or, or wherever. Uh, but most of my work really is with high conflict families. Um, most of my work is doing parenting facilitation where I serve uh, as a case manager really for the courts. And so my job is to help them resolve things out of court. My job is to make sure when the attorneys call and tell me, 
this client's driving me crazy. Please help them to try and help them. But if ultimately one or both parents sabotage the process, then I can report back to the court. Okay. And that's what, I mean, parenting facilitation isn't something we've talked a lot about, on, but it is certainly a resource that's available to help families, I mean, who are high conflict. And it can be ordered by a court. A judge can order the parties to parenting facilitation. Actually, in Texas, uh, a court order is required. Mm. So, you know, sometimes I'll get these mediated settlements where it'll say, Brad Craig appointed as parenting, court, parenting facilitator. I'm like, well, I have to have kind of a full fleshed out order that gives right. me all the rights, duties, and privileges. But parties can agree to it. And that's, right. what, that's what I often find in mediation is parents who really um, want to work together or attorneys and mediators who recognize that there's a potential or it's just safer for the child will often refer families to parenting facilitation. What... Um what makes parenting facilitation successful? Hmm. You know, there's, first of all, there's a lot of different models of parenting facilitation. So I think it's always important to understand that there's no right fit for every family. There's some really clear guidelines that we can do and can't do as a parenting facilitator. A parenting facilitator cannot make recommendations over possession and access. A parenting facilitator has to communicate with everybody, the judges, the, or, well, judges, uh, the judges and the attorneys at the same time, um, but communicate with both attorneys at the time. So there's a lot of requirements that role. We didn't want it to be like a backdoor custody evaluation. So it's crystal clear the parenting facilitator cannot make recommendations of supervised, unsupervised parenting time. Our job is to facilitate. And our job is to help the family work together in the best interest of the children and set up those safe parameters of either parallel or cooperative. It varies from one family to the other. I will tell you there's a lot of families that I, I use an educational model. So typically the parents are going to be in the same room or now that it's all done virtually, they're not, but I'm going to be meeting with them together for the most part. There's other parenting facilitators who keep uh, parents separated during the entire process. And then there's a lot of folks who kind of combine those and I'll combine occasionally, but generally I have them in the same room together or virtually uh, in the same room together. Um, what I find, again, is education. Before a family meets with me as a parenting facilitator, they're required to complete my class. They're required to, um, and they have to file a certificate that shows that they passed the post test and all those things. They're required to get set up for our family wizard and some of those communication tools. So by the time they've met with me, they've already had six hours of co-parenting education. Um, yeah, you know, I've given them as many tools as I can. So there's some families I work with really that in that first session move pretty quickly. When I meet with them, I'll say, you don't seem very high conflict. They're like, if you'd met us three months ago, <laughs> we definitely met that criteria. But you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're not using our child as a secret agent. We're not using a child as the messenger. So some of those families transition very quickly. Obviously, when you're dealing with certain types of personality traits and, and other things like substance abuse or domestic violence, they may have a parent facilitator really up until the child's age 18. But our goal is to wean them typically. So maybe it goes from weekly sessions to every two weeks to monthly, quarterly to as needed basis. What hope do you have um, in the work that you do? Like what, what gives you hope? What hope do you have to offer families who are really hurting right now? You know, education, I keep coming back to that, but I, I think family law itself needs to transform. And it's really exciting. Uh, I've been doing this since 1993, you know, and I walked into a courtroom going, what the heck did I do accepting, accepting <laughs> this job? I'm gonna be ripped apart by attorneys and judges. And, you know, I'm really going to hate this process. And I found that I loved it. But what I loved is being a part of seeing the evolution. You know, I love seeing 
really, again, therapeutic jurisprudence is how can we help these families work together instead of exploiting them and causing long-term conflict and them filing for modification after modification after modification? How can we empower them to go through this process? And I love to see the change. I love that Texas is the first state to ever codify collaborative law. Um, I'm sad that we're behind some states when it comes to our language. We still use possession, custody, and visitation in the legal language, uh, as opposed to other states that have evolved into parenting time and parenting responsibility. Uh, so I think, the, I think the hope that I have is us, the attorneys, mental health professionals, judges who specialize in this field, we continue to evolve into more therapeutic jurisprudence, which is this is a really rough time for you. We're gonna help you resolve this as opposed to creating opponents. <laughs> exactly. And unfortunately, I think if, we're, if you're not intentional going into this about the kind of divorce you want to have and really the kind of life after divorce that you wanna have that's really built to support your children and to support you, I think the, the, those left um, to their own devices will end up in a very high conflict litigation system that you know can chew them up and spit them out and mm -hmm. a lot of damage is done mm -hmm. i agree so i want to thank you for the work that you do with families and helping them help their children um, and creating a better society well thank you jennifer i appreciate it thanks for having me on your show and what a great show by the way i've tuned into all your episodes oh now. thank you so much well we hope if you've enjoyed the show that you will uh, click the link to subscribe below so you can be notified of future uh, podcasts but also we're going to provide a link to Brad Craig's website so you can learn more about his book and his parenting course and the programs that he offers. Thank you.